Hello and welcome to this Institute for Government podcast on Europe's energy crisis. Uh, my name is Tom Sass. I lead the IFG's work on net zero. So with winter approaching, policymakers have been reaching for some dramatic policy interventions in recent weeks in response to the ongoing energy crisis. Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission president, has proposed a big plan to cut electricity demand and extract some windfall profits. Liz Truss's new government has announced a plan which includes a proposal to freeze prices for two years. Looking across the continent, we've seen a full gamut of approaches, including cash transfers, tax cuts, price freezes, windfall taxes, uh, and efforts to curb demand. Most countries are now spending somewhere between 1% and 4% of GDP propping up their energy systems, and the crisis looks a long way from being over. Responding to it's not only proved expensive, but also complex. So there's been a lot of discussion about the trade-offs between more or less targeted approaches, uh, the importance of price signals, how to pay for these huge interventions, and of course, their impact on inflation, which the Bank of England has just weighed in on in the UK today. But what can we say so far about how well different approaches are working? The countries across Europe, including the UK, have a sufficient plan for this winter and the next one, with prices forecast to remain high. And how could we be better prepared in future? To discuss all that, I'm joined by some top experts. Elisabetta Cornago is a senior research fellow at the Centre for European Reform. Alice Hancock is EU correspondent at, at the FT with a focus on energy and climate. And Ollie Bartram is a senior economist here at the IFG. Elisabetta, can I start with you? Uh, how prepared is Europe for the winter ahead, do you think? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think uh, in terms of policy responses, I think the, the rhythm and the focus on, on energy has really been intensifying uh, recently, particularly after the summer. Um, I think we saw a shift probably from the, the the response that the EU put together just after the war started uh, with the Repower EU package, which primarily, I would say, focused on securing volumes of energy, really. Whereas more recently, I think, uh, if, we, if we can generalize, there has been a bit of a shift to energy affordability and, and trying to perhaps coordinate more the response um, across EU countries in terms of how can energy prices spikes in energy prices be, be limited a bit across the EU and then try and coordinate response in, in, in that respect. So, um, as, you know, alongside that, we've also had um, new policy interventions essentially aimed at um, encouraging member states to save energy insofar as possible uh, with voluntary targets really so far on, on the gas front and probably more coming on, on the electricity front. So as you can see, it's a wide menu of options trying to secure energy supplies to Europe as it tries to scale back its reliance on, on, on Russian gas imports and um, and uh, also measures aimed at reducing price pressure on, on, on consumers. Yeah, and, and I mean, you've mentioned a few of them there, but what would you say are the kind of key differences at the national level that we've seen in the, the types of policy responses that have been announced? I think uh, the, the two really most popular approaches at national level have been on one hand transfers to, to vulnerable consumers. So, you know, lump sums essentially being being sent uh, to, to consumers generally via their, their energy utilities. Um, but on the other hand, we also see uh, that there's been quite a wide use of 
cuts to energy taxes and, and VAT. Uh, and, and why is that? That's, that's because that's one of the simple ingredients that governments were able to, to quickly um, uh, touch upon by, to, to reduce retail prices, right? It's harder to, to try and make a dent in wholesale prices, but cutting energy taxes was really one of the simplest things to do. Simplest and most controversial because by artificially lowering energy prices, governments have, in a way, partly muted right the incentives that then consumers have to um, to save energy really so those two i would say have been the most common ones some countries have also acted upon wholesale energy prices trying to limit then you know the the, the price uh, on on the market particularly in the electricity market see for example spain and, and portugal mm-hmm. and another handful have implemented their own windfall profit taxes um but we see then that now you know you have additional measures being taken on that front at, at EU level, or at least being discussed. Yeah, and I think you said in the the report that you you put out recently that despite some of these efforts at windfall taxes and sort of clawing back some of these these profits, that most countries don't haven't really worked out how they're going to pay for all of the relief for households and businesses that's likely to be needed. So, what what are you looking out for in that space? Yeah, I think that is really probably the hardest not to crack and one of the constraints that governments are facing, really. We have, I think we see increasing awareness of the fact that um, what started out as temporary support measures are are, are going to be here for, for a bit longer, unfortunately, than, than expected. And so there's a question of how, as you said, pay for, for these types of transfers and, and, and interventions. Um Windfall, windfall profit taxes are one one part of the story, and and I think it's important to say that they're really revenue raising options more than more than um, price mitigation measures, really. Uh, but there's there's a question about also, or rather than there's a proposal about I guess intervening with a similar measure on the oil and gas sector, not only on the electricity sector to extract then some of the rent that these players are are making. But increasingly, I think there's this awareness that this is going to make a big dent in uh, in, in public debt, really. Um, and, and, and so then that brings the question of how many European countries can afford uh, this type of increase in, in, in public debts. Not all have the same fiscal space. And so I think one question that's sort of lingering, but that at EU level, nobody sort of wants to uh, state out loud quite openly yet is whether the EU is going to need another sort of recovery fund 2.0 to collectively fund, I think, this type of intervention uh, uh, and, and, you know, the the public budget burden that that it brings along. Yeah, that's really interesting. And the debt question is very much one that's live here in the UK, which I'll bring Oli in on in on on a moment. Um, Alice, you've been covering the recent proposals coming out from the Commission. Uh, Could you just take us through what's been proposed there and sort of how significant you think it is? Well, as Elisabetta was saying, it's um, they're sort of concentrating now that the shift has moved to the price issue and bringing down prices. Um, And initially, the Commission proposed uh, a package of well, they didn't propose, they sort of laid out options for five measures. Um, and among those were a cut in um, electricity demand. Um, there was also the suggestion of this so-called inframarginal price cap, which basically means that um, you take the 
revenues above a certain cap of all the um, renewable nuclear coal, all the non-gas power generators, because gas at the moment being the highest price is setting the market rate. That's how the European energy market works. Um, and then there was this uh, solidarity contribution, as they're calling it, um, which is to take the the profits, some of the profits, I should say, uh, that the oil and gas majors are making. Um, so that it's not just, they, they didn't want to be seen to be just targeting. Um, in particular, they were concerned about renewables. You know, the EU has set itself out as a climate leader, net zero by 2050, all these goals. So you don't want to be seen to be taking away um, investment from renewables without also um, hitting the fossil fuel majors. Um, and then also in those options was the suggestion of a Russian um, gas price cap, which has proved controversial amongst member states, to say the least. And then the final part was a kind of um, a laying out of options of uh, what you've just been talking about, you know, financial stability, what can be done to backstop energy companies that are suffering from very, very volatile markets and having very high collateral demands. Um, we've already seen Sweden and Finland um, put in place liquidity measures um, for those. So that was the options that were set out. And then finally, the the proposals that they came forward with more formally last week were um, they, they took out the Russian gas price cap because it proved too controversial among member states, um, but it is something they're still working on. Um, and they also decided to separate out the financial measures. Um, mm. So at the moment, it just stands at the three electricity demand cut, um, the, the windfall tax on uh, non-gas power generators and this so-called solidarity contribution from fossil fuel uh, companies. And you mentioned the, the controversy around some of those measures, but has the response to the rest of that been sort of reasonably positive from member states? Is this sort of looking like it's going to go ahead? Yeah, it has. It really has. Um, it's actually, given the usual time and bureaucracy that the EU can take, it's been fairly amazing to see energy ministers moving quite fast on this. Um, the, the They had an emergency energy ministers meeting uh, nearly two weeks ago now, and the kind of common theme was this is urgent, we must do something. And I think they see those three um, options as the kind of low hanging fruit in this, you know, the electricity demand cut is um, it's 10% of uh, all electricity um, consumption that's voluntary. And then there's a mandatory 5% cut of peak hour usage and things like that. I mean, it, it is a lot, but it's sort of, you know, doable. And they know, you know, cutting demand is the, the one thing that really is going to help and make it a quick difference. Um, so I think they see it just as necessary. It's an emergency. And so there is quite a lot of um, agreement on that. There's some tensions over whether certain things should be voluntary or mandatory, over whether it should be um, one uniform price cap for the non-gas generators or one per technology. So you might have a different one for nuclear, say, or you might have a different one for you know coal, which has a much higher cost. Um, but largely, I think there is, um, there's agreement behind them. And uh, there's a meeting next Friday, uh, at which they're due to sort of rubber stamp uh, the three um, measures. And I think I think then it probably will go ahead with with some tweaks, of course. Right, and I mean, not asking you to make predictions here, but I mean, do you think this signal, signals a sort of uh, a shift in the approach? I think we've seen some criticism from Bruegel and others. Of I think Bruegel called it a sort of uncoordinated and excessively national, nationally focused responses so far to the energy crisis. And do you think this this signals a kind of more Europe wide approach? 
Um, let me look at my crystal ball. Um, <laughs> I think um, it's it's difficult because it's, it's that constant balance in the EU of how much does the commission get involved and how much is it up to the member states? You know, there's always that tension. There is a heck of a lot of allowance in the document for member states, partly because a lot of them have already put in their own measures. I mean, Elizabeth mentioned some of them. Um, Spain has capped wholesale gas prices. Greece has a sort of its own inframarginal price cap in operation. Um, Germany's done a lot of nationalizing its energy companies, so forth. So, um, so member states have really been pushing to make sure that they can maintain those national measures at the same time as allowing the EU to kind of have an EU-wide uh, approach because you've got to keep sort of a level of a level playing field in, within the single market. And that that does make sense. Um, so I think it's, it's easy to criticize and say that, you know, um, there is a, a lot, possibly too much national allowance within it. But it, given that member states had already taken action before the Brussels got to it, um, I think that's kind of how it had to be. Yeah. Ollie, um, having heard what Elizabeth and Alice have said, uh, what's your take on sort of how the UK has decided to tackle this crisis compared to how other European countries have? Sure. So I think there are three things that I would pick out. Uh, the first one is the size of the fiscal response uh, in terms of supporting people with price rises, etc. Uh, Bruegel's latest uh, sort of data set of different responses across different countries suggests that the UK, in terms of spending as a share of GDP, may be spending twice as much uh, as, as, as any other EU country. So it looks like the size of the package is pretty huge. It's quite difficult to dig down into that to determine why. I suspect... One reason is how universal it is. Uh, the UK government is capping prices for literally every consumer of energy in the country. Uh, nobody is going to be facing the sort of wholesale market price for energy in the UK, at least for the next six months. The second is the duration of the package. Households will have their energy prices frozen for two years. Um which I think is a longer subsidy than is in place in, in many other EU countries. Uh, the third might be to do with the sort of market structure in the UK. For example, France freezing prices might not show up so much on its spending figures as it does in the UK due to differences in ownership of the energy industry. But I mean, you know, moving past those sort of nuances, I think the first thing I'd bring out is that the UK package is huge. Uh, the second thing which relates to the way in which the UK package is being delivered is the absence of any measures here on energy demand. So we are sort of distorting price signals a bit here, many other EU countries are, and that will mean that users of energy uh, will consume more than they would have done had they had had they faced the market price. Um, as we've heard uh, from, our, from our other guests earlier, 
part of the EU response is to try to reduce energy demand. We've heard absolutely nothing on that so far in the UK. In fact, uh, Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, has insisted that she won't do anything of the sort um, because it's sort of seen as too overbearing. Um, But that does pose risks to physical supply of energy uh, in the future. And I guess the third big difference is on how to pay for it. So as we've heard, the EU is considering a or is uh, introducing a cap on the EU is uh, capping the prices that uh, non-gas electricity suppliers can charge. Uh, Other countries within the EU have already implemented some form of windfall tax in order to recoup some of the money that they are spending on large transfers to support people with energy bills. We've heard very little uh, from the Prime Minister on on that in the UK. In fact, she explicitly ruled out any form of, of windfall tax. So the huge UK package is going to be paid for entirely through borrowing. Now, there's perhaps one exception to this in that the UK government is trying to secure deals with uh, renewables and, and, and nuclear generators. Uh, to sell below the market price now uh, in exchange for being able to sell above the market price in the future, sort of uh, analogous to the contracts for difference uh, arrangements that, 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 we, that we currently have for a lot of, a lot of new renewables projects. Um, that might reduce the price of energy in the short term in the UK. I'd sort of call that a compromise between a windfall tax and and doing nothing um and the idea is is that generators enter into this agreement voluntarily rather than being forced to as 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 they might do for a windfall tax that's really interesting ollie i'm glad you mentioned that chart uh from the Bruegel report there's a chart we'll put the the report in the show notes but it shows uh the sort of proportion that's being of, of gdp that, that countries are sort of spending on responding to the energy crisis and the uk way out ahead of, of most european countries i mean give you know you, you mentioned a few caveats in there um and i suppose it's possible given what elizabeth said that that other european countries may need to sort of come up with some more generous schemes over over the coming weeks and months but do you think in UK policy circles, people have kind of realised or, or sort of taken in just how generous and, and big in scale the UK approach has been relatively. Well, it's sort of hard to, it's quite hard to digest this sort of figure of 150 billion that apparently the government is going to be spending over the next few years. Um, I think people have realised that it is huge. I mean, we've already seen lots of comparisons with, for example, the support provided during COVID. If it does turn out to be 150 billion, then that's 50% more than we spent on supporting the entire labour market uh, during COVID-19. It's comparable to what we spend on our entire health sector. One point that I think has been underappreciated in the UK so far, though, I mean, it was news to me when I was preparing for this for this podcast is just how huge it is uh, compared to the sums being spent 
in the European Union. I think that comparisons with the EU as they sort of continue to be made in the weeks and months ahead, both on the size of the package, but also how much uh, revenue is being generated through windfall taxes and wholesale price caps in the EU, that will probably uh, put pressure on the UK government to do more to generate revenue, mm. whether that's via a, a, a windfall tax, whether it's via these agreements that we voluntary agreements we measure, mentioned earlier with uh, renewables and, and, and nuclear generators. Um, but yes, we've seen in the past few days a lot of concern about the increase in debt that this package is going to generate. Um, and the thing with windfall taxes is it's never really too late. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we may well see the government coming under pressure to do more uh, in the near term. Elizabeth, uh, Ollie mentioned there the fact that in the UK, we've seen very little action on the demand side of the equation. We actually published a, a report looking at uh, energy efficiency and calling it a sort of big hole in, in, in the government's approach, but also sort of more, more short-term measures like sort of encouraging people to turn down their, their thermostats and looking at boiler efficiency and things like that, where actually the UK politicians haven't really been willing to sort of front up those campaigns, even if, if charities are saying those sorts of things. Um, how successful do you think the sort of efforts to to reduce energy demand in in the EU have been. We've read over here about um, you know discussion of different measures on speed limits and text messages to people reminding them to turn their heating down or conserve energy. I mean, has this seen this led to a, a big shift in households and businesses? Look, I think it's it's a it's a difficult question to answer, really, because on one hand, I, I consider the fact that there are now these even though they are voluntary, again, EU-wide energy targets, um, energy-saving targets for, for gas and soon most likely for, for electricity, as Alice was saying. I think that's a big step forward with respect to, say, six months ago, where also in the EU, I think most governments were really reluctant, uh, like, like the UK government is perhaps now, to ask people for additional sacrifices, I guess, right? The narrative being, you know, we just got out of COVID. Uh, we cannot ask people to, to continue basically sacrificing um, their personal freedom, so to speak, um, uh, for, for, for the common good. But, but the fact that you now have these, um, these targets in place signals that, well, then there is going to to be more and more national level than implementation actions to actually reach them. Now, how um, how much uh, individual governments have, have managed to actually translate do those, let's say, numerical targets into concrete actions is, is a bit heterogeneous across the EU, really. I think mm. Germany has, has, for example, announced a, a range of, of measures recently, including mandatory ones, for example, um, Asking uh, sort of large-scale energy consumers, so, so namely uh, businesses, to 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 undertake specific energy-saving measures, and then you know go, go through um, energy audits to, to make sure that all the lower-hanging fruits are are implemented. So rather than just let's say asking people to pay attention to their thermostat, I think there is now this increasing attention to what can we do to structurally reduce demand. Um, mm. So to you know not only essentially address the emergency in this upcoming winter, but also in the medium term, um, but from there to, I think, large-scale campaigns that really reaches consumers 
households, not just businesses, which I think are, by the nature of the contracts, they are normally exposed um, to, I think, more sensitive to the fluctuations in wholesale prices. I, I think we're not quite at mass mobilization yet, really. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's fair to say that probably there, there are large groups of consumers that um, have been already cutting down their own energy consumption, because in any case, there has been an upward movement in energy prices that we've all noticed, even though perhaps retail prices have been you know, a bit stickier than, than the ones businesses face. Uh, some consumers, because they're maybe more environmentally uh, mindful, they, they have done, they've gone the extra mile. But from there to having the sort of mass mobilization that, that things like um, peak time energy saving really on a large scale um, would mean, I think that there's a big difference and, and, and we are not quite there yet. But I do think that we're going to have to get there, particularly if this, if this um, peak time energy saving target is, is approved and, and that looks, I think, uh, likely uh, uh, soon, soon enough, as, as Alice was saying, um, there are, I think, where we are going to see a bit more specific uh, appeals uh, from yeah. from governments to to consumers uh, to really change their behavior. Um, that said, I think you know there's one thing is again asking for voluntary behavior change. One, something that we can really see has already happened, and unfortunately, it's not such a good sign. Is uh, what we call energy demand destruction in a way, because we know that some businesses, particularly in energy intensive industries, have been um, really uh, shutting down uh, plants altogether, uh, or um, something that's that's a bit less um, stark. I think is fuel shifting. So those that can have been shifting from from gas to oil, for example, uh, to, to to power up their operations. Uh, on the electricity front, you know, some some businesses have tried to perhaps shift their 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 operations to, to off peak times to, to to benefit from lower prices. So there's some so to speak, positive adaptation, uh, and, and some, on the other hand, demand destruction, which from, from the energy saving perspective is you know good news, but from the economics perspective and from what that means in terms of the health of, of the European economy, I think it's going to be, uh, it's, it, it is already, I think, uh, rather bad news. Alice, did you want to come in on that? Because I know you've been, been writing a bit about some of the response from industry to some of these suggestions coming forward from the commission. Yeah, I just I think first I just want to come in on what Ollie was saying about demand. I, I really find it genuinely astounding that the UK has not said anything about um reducing demand. It's it's the thing that everyone here in Brussels says to me is the most obvious, the most straightforward and the quickest thing you can do to ease prices and to ease the supply issue. Um it is very difficult for industry. There's been a lot of um uh complaints from particularly the steel and fertilizer industries which are very gas dependent um that the support is not being targeted enough um that you know some of them um have had to shut down vast swathes of their sectors um we're seeing smaller players you know really on the edge slash going under um but as we were saying earlier, the EU's kind of left it up to member states to decide where the support goes. So it's just saying, you know, we'll 
will say you have to put in place these taxes and then it's up to you what you do with the revenues. Um, and so industry just has to fight to make sure it gets a bit of that pie. Um, and in the kind of rhetoric of the EU, it's been very much consumer and um, uh, small to medium enterprise focused, I think. Um, I think industry would like to sort of have a bit more time in the spotlight on this. Um, but it, yeah, it remains to be seen how um, EU capitals will will spend the revenues. Yeah. And, and just on that point about you know, there's, trying to understand how why the UK has not gone down this route of, of talking about demand. I mean, what what's the public reaction been to these sorts of approaches in in the EU? Have have people generally been sort of quite willing to sort of say, yes, I can I can make some small sacrifices uh, in the national cause? Because as far as we can understand it, in the UK, politicians are sort of nervous about being seen to be too nannying or bossing people around or it's not the sort of thing they think government should be doing but as you say it is it, given the, the the difference it could make it becomes a more and more strange omission yeah i don't know what um the other guests here have seen and it's obviously hard to say there's been a sort of uniform reaction across any of the 27 member states i think some people are quite proud of um <laughs> You know, it's like, you know, it's the Second World War blitz spirit almost. It's, you know, we've reduced energy. And um, I think the Dutch, for example, because of the high prices, actually, they managed to reduce their um, energy use by something like 15% in the first five months of the year. Um, And that was, you know, that's just consumers cutting back. And there was a certain pride when I speak to some of the Dutch people, I know that that's been the case. And um, I've seen on Twitter, you know, people in various countries sharing tips on um, anything from like how to be able to, shower at a decent heat without running your energy bill or in Italy they're how to cook pasta for longer you know boil it properly um and still save energy so there's a certain amount of pride I think we have seen I mean lots of politicians are very worried um that there will be mass protests if things get tougher though and if it's you know if it's a very cold winter um if it seems like the conflict in Ukraine isn't going anywhere um then we may see support begin to crumble and um and governments facing a really really quite difficult situation ollie can you see much prospect of the trust government getting into uh, some of those approaches to demand no i don't think so based on what they've said so far but i mean i think it will really it will really depend how the situation evolves i mean i think the real issue in the UK, I think, is going to be the industry response. As Alice says, we've seen some pretty huge reductions in consumption uh, in in some countries and, and indeed in the UK so far this year. But because of how households and industry respond differently to energy price rises uh, in terms of industry having a sort of larger elasticity of response you know they'll reduce their demand more for every uh, every x percent increase in it in energy i mean so, so a, a lot of the response ends up coming from industry and that's how we achieve large-scale demand reductions yet the uk has essentially put a very 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 low ceiling on the prices that industry is going to be paying at least for the next six months in the UK. So I guess a lot of what happens to UK demand 
it depends on what happens to those po- uh, what happens to that policy for businesses <laughs> as it stands that is set to expire at the end of march so it's only going to be in place for 6 months if the government maintains that line and businesses expect to be paying much higher prices from april we may see a lot of investment in energy efficiency towards less energy intensive technologies that will reduce energy demand also over the next 6 months um but if they get sort of bounced into keeping the support in place for much longer which may be necessary um or m- may be necessary for some specific industries anyway um then that will change the nature of the demand reduction i mean i, d- I don't really see them doing much on the household side at all i mean it doesn't really doesn't really fit with what Liz Truss has said so far, it would be a sort of huge U-turn uh, on on her behalf. But then she said, you know, throughout the leadership campaign that she'd be giving no handouts and has ended up spending twice as much than any other EU country on on what some people might call a, a, a form of handouts. So I'm not expecting anything on the household side, but uh, this government may well surprise us. Uh, but I think in terms of energy's demand, we really need to be looking at at, at sort of the uh, industrial sector in the UK and what happens to that policy. Uh, there's going to be lots and lots and lots of lobbying of the government over the next six months to keep that support in place. There are some vulnerable firms, so energy intensive industries and SMEs in particular. Um, but yeah, we'll just have to see how all that plays out. Yeah. Elizabeth, uh, looking ahead then, uh, we were talking just before we started recording about the, the sort of possible impact of this energy crisis on the other big question, which is the sort of transition to net zero. Of course, we've seen some people sort of criticizing net zero or sort of saying it's in some way to blame uh, for some of the problems we've been seeing. Um, but also others warning that actually the fallout of some of this energy crisis could uh, hamper in some ways the, the sort of transition. If you look at areas like investment in renewables, for example, uh, what do you see as, as the risks there? Hmm. I don't think that this is going to hamper investment in renewables, uh, rather the opposite, at least the opposite is what the economics, I think, of, of um, the electricity sector today would seem to suggest, right? Renewables are in a rather favorable spot when it comes to their um, relative cost with respect to, to, to other technologies, even nuclear, for example. Um, so I think we're bound to see more of those. And I think uh, the UN and member states are sort of scrambling to remove the bottlenecks to that type of investment, notably, for example, simplifying permitting processes or identifying sort of simplified procedures to to find um, um, areas where uh, where where for example wind wind farms or or, or solar panels can be installed um, with, with, with less bureaucracy um, but more broadly I think on what what the energy crunch means for climate action I think that's you know it's it's a very legitimate question first of all to your point of people um, essentially blaming uh, climate action for for the price increase. Um, 
it is it is indeed something we have seen. Um, there have been, for example, lots of calls from the Polish government to freeze um, uh, European carbon pricing, to freeze the EU ETS. Uh, a social party blaming increases in, in, in carbon pricing for, for what we're seeing more broadly on, on, on the energy price front. But they're, they're, they've been pushed back. They're rather, I would say, lonely on, on, on that front. However, uh, looking forward, I think the current situation might perhaps slow down, I think, the ambition to expand carbon pricing to other areas of the economy. As we speak, essentially, uh, the EU is still in the process of negotiating the Commission, Parliament and member states are in the process of negotiating the various proposals contained in the in the big climate policy package called Fit for 55, which sort of paves the way for its 2030 um, climate targets. And one of those proposals entails um, creating a new emissions trading system to cover um, the, the building sector and the road transport sector. And, you know, if that was already a rather touchy subject before uh, before the war started and before prices started spiking further, because, you know, politicians were wary of putting additional um, an additional price burden on consumers and sort of afraid of seeing yellow vest type of scenes on the street. I think now with already very high energy price levels, there is this concern that, well, perhaps the timing is not great to go ahead and, and implement a policy that is going to, to increase prices further, even though the magnitude of, of that additional carbon price might be small relative to, to what we're seeing on, for example, the gas market today, right? Um, so that is, for example, something I, I, I worry about, the fact that we might see in the best case scenario, a delay in that type of ambition, and in the worst case scenario, a, a complete sort of, you know, pu- pu- putting aside of, of uh, for example, carbon pricing as a strategy for um, for emissions uh, reductions. Um, maybe another type of big policy discussion that I think is going to accelerate uh, because of the crisis is the one which I know is also taking place in the UK on power market uh, design reform. And, and how to go about it. I think it's been rather interesting to see how the narrative around that has really changed quite dramatically uh, in the EU in the past six months. Uh, because if you looked, you know, really six months ago, in Brussels, I mean, among officials, among in the European Commission, I think the statement was, you know, let's not even think about uh, touching power market design. The market works just fine as it is. And now... Even even Commission President von der Leyen herself said we actually need to 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 do in depth reforms of of the power market to decouple electricity prices from from gas prices. Now, how that is going to look like, how quickly that is going to come, I think is 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 a, is a type of question that still does not have an answer. But I think it's another sort of policy byproduct um, of 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 the crisis we're seeing. Alice, did you want to respond to um, what Elizabeth just said there about sort of concerns around the climate transition? And then if I could ask you, just what, what are the, the sort of key things that you'll be looking out for in the coming weeks and months in terms of big decisions at the EU level? In terms of the impact on the climate transition, um, I think, you know, everything Elizabeth has said is very on point, especially as regards the carbon pricing carbon market um there's already been a sort of uh 
dilution of the original proposal for that, which was to apply it to all residential buildings and transport within the EU as well as commercial, but that's been sort of taken out for fear of the, the so-called gilet jaune reaction. Um, I think the thing that concerns me when it comes to this crisis and um, sort of many of the NGOs and others I speak to, people who work on the energy transition, is that a lot of investment is going into uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. There have been coal plants refiring up um, there's been a lot of investment into liquefied natural gas terminals so that you can regasify um, the gas that's shipped in. Um, and the, the sort of question marks over that is, are, are people, you know, investors will who invest in these projects will expect a return. And to get a return, they need to run for a certain amount of time. And does that then slow up um, the transition to cleaner fuels? Um, in particular, coal plants, you know, we're, we're seeing a sort of We'd, we'd moved away from coal and now we're sort of going back to it. That doesn't look great. Um, the thing that many people say is that, you know, if you've got gas pipelines, for example, being built, they could be repurposed in time for hydrogen um, that's created from renewable energy sources. That's all very well, but it's still very unproven technology. And we've only got some small pilot schemes that show those kind of pipelines uh, being used. So it's, it's, that's a concern, I think, um, in terms of uh, will we meet the the grand goals for 2030 and beyond that in 2050. Really interesting. Ollie, I just wanted to finish on this question of what governments, governments generally might sort of learn from this crisis. You've been writing and, and talking about the fact that governments have been forced into some rather sort of suboptimal choices because they've not really prepared the types of policy response they might need and they've you know, sort of not had the options in terms of what they can deliver. What sort of things do you think they might do considering that, that we might see these sorts of crises again in, in future? Sure. So I can talk about the things I think they, sh- they should be doing, uh, but we'll see, we'll see whether, they, whether they actually do them. I mean, the first one is to just pick up on what uh, Elizabeth was saying about reforms to the electricity market. Uh, the government is just uh, the government here in the United Kingdom has just launched a big review of of wholesale uh, electricity markets. Um, now, the primary objective of that is to ensure that our market is designed in such a way that we incentivize decarbonisation um, in order to achieve our twenty thirty five objectives. That as a primary aim is obviously hugely important, and I would hope there's additional impetus behind that to the extent that we use less gas and it therefore sets the price less often. That's going to make us much more resilient. There are also a lot of suggestions within that review, a lot of different policies, a lot of different alternative market arrangements that, again, echoing what Ursula von der Leyen uh, has has said would decouple gas and electricity prices. That lots of those different policies would leave us less exposed uh, to fluctuations, volatility in 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 global energy markets going forwards. Um, the second area is essentially any other policies that that will that will help us to decarbonize and also to uh to to reduce that that reliance but i uh, i think the third one and this gets to your point about 
choosing between several suboptimal options is the government should at least the UK government should be working on ways to deliver fiscal transfers in a smarter way. Mm. Essentially, the reason why we went for this incredibly expensive universal price freeze is because the alternative was to use extremely clunky mechanisms with which to deliver financial transfers. The way the UK welfare system works We could have delivered fiscal transfers to a lot of people, but they would. There's no way that we could have made them proportionate to energy usage, um, at least this winter, which would have been particularly problematic for those low-income households who also use um, a lot of a lot of energy. Um, And. The way the UK benefit system is designed, there would have also been lots of cliff edges in support. So, for example, we could have uh, given checks to, to or transfers to everyone on universal credit. But for those that were sort of just out of the uh, just out of the bands for universal credit, they would have faced a, a sort of huge cliff edge in support and actually an incentive to reduce their income so they could end up being on universal credit. Now, there are plenty of suggestions out there for better ways in which to design energy support. So, for example, using uh, data and characteristics about where people live to predict energy usage and adjust fiscal transfers for that. It's possible, it can be done, it would just take a few months of data collection and getting the systems in place. Um, we sort of had been calling for the UK government to be doing that for for, for months, um, but it hasn't. We were hoping that they would do this freeze for six months and then introduce smarter benefits after that. It seems like they've chosen to do the freeze for two years and not worry about improving the ways in which welfare is delivered, which which is a shame and is part of the reason why this package is so expensive. Um, and finally, as your excellent report shows, they should be doing a lot more on energy efficiency um, to the extent that we can make sure that, that people have to use less energy to, to heat and power their homes. That is also going to reduce uh, vulnerability to volatility in energy prices well thanks for finishing on a a plug for my work which i uh, didn't line you up for um but that's all we've got time for um do look out for elizabeth's and alice's and ollie's work on this uh in the coming weeks and months um we at ifg will be talking about the energy crisis and many other issues besides at the labor and tory party conferences in the coming weeks so do look out for our events uh, as well if you are there But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.